Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear James Gangle. And I'm trying to force it into the soft shell. But how do you force a snail back into its shell? And then Rebecca says, you know, James, I'm on the pill. That and more. But before that, boy, do we have three big new shows scheduled that I want to let you all know about. Three Texas dates coming up in January. On January 18th, we're in Austin, Texas. The theme that night is The Real Deal. On January 19th, it's Houston. The theme is Unbelievable. And on January 20th, we are back in Dallas, Texas. The theme that night is adventure. We are taking pitches for all three shows. So if you live anywhere near Austin, Houston, or Dallas, remember, Austin's the 18th, Houston's the 19th, Dallas is the 20th. Pitch us at risk-show.com submissions. The submissions page includes a video which tells you how to pitch us, tells you how to get our attention with a pitch that'll really knock us out. So go to risk-show.com slash submissions, and Texas folks, come out and see us in Austin on the 18th, Houston on the 19th, Dallas on the 20th. Also, you know, we just finished with our recent Halloween episode in October and our recent winter holidays episode in you know around the end of december there we are always all year round taking pitches for scary stories for our halloween episodes and light and fun christmas or hanukkah or, or new year's or whatnot kind of stories for our holidays episode at the end of the year so pitch us anytime with a scary story or a holidays kind of story at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Also, just want to have a quick word about how going to the post office is so old school, my friends. There's such a hassle in going to that damn place. 
That's why over 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com to get the postage right from their desks whenever they need it 24 hours a day. Stamps.com turns your computer and printer into a virtual post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Stamps.com is just the better way to do your mailing and shipping. It's so easy to use. It lets you focus your time where you want it on growing your business instead of time-consuming trips to the post office. Have we covered that <laughs> is, is it established that going to the post office takes okay no wonder over two billion dollars in postage was printed just last year alone using stamps.com we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. That's a good start to uh, 2017 for you. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Donnie McCaslin behind me now, and we are calling this episode live from LA 2. Of course, we have a, a show once a month in the city of Los Angeles. It now happens at the Bootleg Theater, and the next one is January 21st, 2017. But this is from last year. This is a wonderful show. We just wanted to show what it's like, what it's like to be there at the Bootleg, and we want to encourage you to keep coming out there if you do live anywhere near Los Angeles. This show was hosted by my dear friend, Beowulf Jones, and Amanda Seals helped him out with the hosting. Beowulf often has a co-host up there uh, to kind of banter around with, and it always makes it extra fun. And we're going to have the show more or less uninterrupted as well. No uh, no commercial breaks in this one. I'm uh, I, I, There's kind of no reason for me to be here because... Amanda and Beowulf let you know who all the storytellers are bit by bit. So, without further ado, here it is, live from Los Angeles 2 at the Bootleg Theater with your hosts, Beowulf Jones and Amanda Seals. And I'm Amanda Seals. To my left, Amanda Seals! Yay! We have a great lineup for you tonight. We have Jackie Hoffman. I 
think you can clap a little more. This is fucking Jackie Hoffman. Oh, very excited. We got Dan St. Germain. We have Caroline Weiss. We have James Gangle. We have Amanda Seals. Uh, but our first performer coming up to the stage, this is his third time doing the show. Uh, he was in the movie Unfriended. He was in uh, on another period on Comedy Central. And he is the focus of the documentary film Modern Millennial. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Moses Storm. going for Beowulf your host is there a preferred mic for the uh, podcast people is there one that's both okay I'll just just to be safe I'll split the difference we'll say some words here and then some words here great I already won the crowd over with some great mic work I feel good about this already um, okay so uh, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing is like a really hard concept to grasp uh, not only when you're an eight-year-old kid, but also when you're an eight-year-old kid who's used to having nothing. Uh, we were very poor growing up. Mom was a single parent with five kids, all pretty close in age, from like 13 to six. It was a pretty pertinent time in our life. So the courts go to my dad, and they're like, okay, so you're like, you need to pay uh, some child support. And he's like, ooh, uh, pass. Uh, so then all of us kids went to our mom, and we were like, okay, uh, you should probably get like a job then. And she's like, mm, pass. Why would I waste the best years of your kid's life? You're stuck at some job. Wouldn't you rather have me here at the house hanging out with you guys? And all of us kids were like, yeah, uh, pass. Why would you do that? Why would you waste the best years of our life not having money? Uh, it's not like she didn't work. I don't, I don't want to put that impression out there. She just had a lot of creative ways of providing for us. Uh, one of those ways is she would just shoplift. She would steal all the time. Uh, but she was uh, terrible at it. Like, I remember one time she tried to steal bottles of vitamins from a grocery store. I don't know if you've ever tried to steal bottles of vitamins before, but it's a lot like trying to steal maracas. <laughs> just, And after she got banned from multiple grocery stores in Florida, where we lived, uh, in, in, our, in this town, she started uh, stealing from the back of the grocery store. It was a much lower risk way. This started with like early shipments of baked goods that would come in the morning. Before the clerks came in, she would load that up in our van. And uh, this is where she found our primary food source for the next eight years. Uh, we started eating from the garbage. Uh, what does that mean? That means like wh whatever the grocery store would throw out that day is what we had for dinner. So some nights that's a few scattered vegetables. The next night it could be 350 expired Thomas bagels. Um, this was an even lower risk way of feeding five kids because like no one is policing the dumpster. It's just us versus pigeons. <laughs> so one day I'm in the back of a grocery store in Florida and it's like a particularly down day for me. It's just like very hot. Uh, I haven't showered in two days because they just turned off our water. And um, I'm standing in this dumpster and it's the first time I've become like very sentient of like how embarrassing this situation is. I'm just looking at all my siblings surrounding the dumpster and like I'm looking down, it's just like overwhelming all the trash in the dumpster. And you always hear that argument from like uh, self-described uh, freegans or, or people, like all those like documentaries about food waste where it's like, yeah, we throw out so much in, in this country. And I can tell you that 
as someone who has eaten from the dumpster for eight years, uh, yes, that's completely true. There's a lot of very usable resources that we waste every day in this country that end up in the dumpster, but uh, those items are surrounded by complete trash. <laughs> and as trash law goes, those items now become trash. Like 90% of the time, I guarantee you, grocery store is killing it. They know exactly what they're doing. When enough water separates from yogurt, that should no longer cost money. So I'm going through this dumpster and I put my arms around this cold trash bag, which never happens. Like, trash is always hot. Like, even in the middle of Chicago in the winter, like, it's at least, like, body temperature. And I open up this bag and I find probably the best thing that a nine-year-old boy can find in the garbage. I actually named this day as a kid. Uh, it's a day called Ice Cream Blowout. <laughs> What's an ice cream blowout? Well, an ice cream blowout is when the grocery store decides to annually clean their freezer and they throw out all of their ice cream novelties at once. <laughs> this is a great day, because these are the items that I would pass by every day in the grocery store. Like, on the way to buying rice and beans or 200 tubs of cream cheese or to the manager's office when my mom is in custody. <laughs> and the more you can't have these items, the more you want them. And it's very hard to make the argument as a poor kid that you need ice cream when novelties is in the title. <laughs> so now it's ice cream blowout day and I'm surrounded by four trash bags of everything I have ever wanted. Uh, my siblings and I, we get maybe like 30 feet from the actual dumpster before we start like tearing into the bags and eating directly from them. Usually we had a little bit more class than this. Like we would wait till like we got home or when people aren't driving by and looking in our eyes as their heart breaks. Like sometimes people would stop in the back of the grocery store and just give us money. And like nothing is more embarrassing than an unsolicited $20 bill. Because it's not like we're out there with like a cup of change. People are just like stopping their car and giving us money and it's like, <laughs> Can you make this not your life now? <laughs> They're like paying us to not feel sadness for themselves. Um, so it's ice cream blowout day, right? So I just rip these bags out of the trash and I'm tearing right into it because you have to understand something. Ice cream in the Florida sun is no longer just like a relaxing treat that you can just like save for later. It is a ticking, melting time bomb. <laughs> like if you were going to try all the flavors, you need to try them all right now. And there's this added pressure when you're in an ice cream blowout because you know that they only annually clean the freezers, that when you are presently in an ice cream blowout, you are the furthest away from the next ice cream blowout. <laughs> so I'm just like shoveling ice cream into my face as like fast and as like hard as I can, just like wishing my mouth was bigger, hoping like my pores and my skin could absorb flavor and like the heavy cream is making me exhausted but then the sugar and the chocolate is like give me a second wave of energy. <laughs> And I'm like, not only am I like not even enjoying it anymore, I'm just like, I'm like mad at the ice cream. Like something happened in the late 90s where ice cream went insane. There's something called a drumstick loaded that it was not only a, an ice cream cone, but that was covered in a hard shell of chocolate. And then just when I thought I was done, in the center is solid chocolate. So I'm just like, oh, fuck you. Fuck you. Of course I'm gonna eat you, but also fuck you. I'm gonna eat a solid candy bar. By the end of it, all my siblings and I, we are not doing well. Like, not only physically, but like emotionally not doing well. I think it's very rare that you get to find out exactly what you would do for a Klondike bar. 
turns out some pretty sick shit. So now my mom has a problem on her hands. She's got five sticky kids and then no water at home. So then we do what we would always do whenever we ran out of water, and that is we would break in to a condo community to use their pool as a bath. Uh, not with like soap. My mom just believed that, you know, swimming in a pool gets you just as clean as a bath, which you're right, is completely wrong. Believing that you get clean from a pool is like drinking nothing but Sunny D and then believing that you are on a juice cleanse. <laughs> now, we did this quite often, so much that my mom had a set of rules that she would always go over with us before we would break into a condo community. Uh, most important rule when you break in is keep a low profile, like don't do anything that's gonna get you noticed. The way that my mom would exactly phrase it is she would say to us, this isn't a movie, so don't make a scene. Which, like, I didn't know that wasn't a saying until, like, maybe this week. Like, I said that. <laughs> People were like, what? And I'm like, what? Like, I said that to adults. <laughs> now, it's a good day to break into a condo community. It's hot, so it's packed with other families. We can easily blend in. Uh, so we all, like, spread out in the pool. And um, my oldest brother, Noah, is the last to jump in. And there's a little saying that says, like, mm, you shouldn't eat a big meal before you go swimming. Here's exactly why. So he jumps in and he immediately vomits. Just bloop, bloop. Like there's a second splash. And what happens when a 12-year-old boy throws up a garbage bag full of lukewarm ice cream is it makes like a lava lamp type of monster in the water that just like undulates and gets bigger. Like it almost seems like it's alive. So now everyone in the pool is looking at him. Even I am looking at him, which is a mistake because I'm a sympathetic puker. So when I see this, I can't help it. I just, oh, I also start vomiting. It sets off a chain reaction because then my younger sister behind me, she starts vomiting. And then my older brother, David, and finally my sister, Faith. And now there are five kids simultaneously throwing up hot garbage into a pool. <laughs> which turns out is uh, way too many kids. I know that because the mood at the pool quickly turns. Parents are now freaking the fuck out. They think there's some sort of like contagious super virus in the pool. They're pulling their own kids out of the water so fast. Kids are screaming and it's pure pandemonium. Like it looks like a scene out of Jaws. And my mom notices this and if it looks like a scene out of Jaws, then we are now breaking the one rule. We're making a scene. So we need to get the hell out of this. My mom's like, let's just go, let's just go. But uh, when five human beings uh, throw up simultaneously at any location, uh, people have a lot of questions. Uh, the first one is obviously, you know, are you guys okay? The uh, second one is, uh, what unit do you guys live in? <laughs> to which my mom very calmly and tactfully replies with, I don't need to answer that, just run, run! So now we're doing the second worst activity that you can do with an upset stomach. And we had to leave our shoes behind, so we're just like limp running on the hot pavement while like simultaneously still throwing up a little bit. Which if you're having trouble picturing it, just picture the least smooth getaway. <laughs> really just ensuring that anyone who was not looking at us before is definitely looking at us now. Like we are a spectacle. So I'm running as fast as I can, and I wish I could say for the sake of the story and, and the climax that there was this epic chase scene where we're like narrowly escaping security guards, but I look behind us, no one's chasing us. <laughs> now, by the time the next ice cream blowout had rolled around, I had learned to pace myself because if you have too much of a good thing, you could end up ruining a pool. Thank you, guys.
going for Moses Storm. All right, guys, you want to just keep this going? All right, I am so excited for our next performer. This is such a thrill to have her on the stage. Uh, she has appeared in many shows on Broadway, such as The Addams Family, Hairspray, and my personal favorite, Xanadu. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Jackie Hoffman. I never had a biological clock. I had an, I'd better get rich and famous so I can afford to pay for getting laid when I'm too old and ugly to get laid on my own clock. <laughs> I hate children and toddlers. I've never liked children. I've never wanted one. I never had a maternal instinct. My idea of the perfect baby gift is anything that says choking hazard. <laughs> If there's a baby versus pit bull, you know who I'm rooting for. If God forbid I think a toddler's gonna be in my apartment, I take all my prescriptions and I put them on the floor. I'm just kidding, I'd never let a toddler in my apartment. So, uh, when I was in my childbearing years, I went for my annual checkup and the doctor feels a lump and he says I should get a uterine sonogram. And I thought, okay, at least my uterus will be in films. So <laughs> I get this sonogram and they find a whopper of a tumor that's attached to the uterine wall and it's called a fibroid. And by nature, they're mostly benign. And I ask, of course, does it weigh anything? And he said about two pounds, <laughs> like a crack baby. And I thought, well, can it be removed? And he said, well, if it's small enough, you can deliver it vaginally so you'd actually be delivering your own uterus, which is what I loved about living in New York. You can get anything delivered. <laughs> so it wasn't bothering me. It wasn't causing any symptoms and he says they're mostly benign, so I blow it off. I mean, for me to blow off something medical is very unusual because I have a rich, complex medical history, and I come from a long line of hypochondriacs, and I play these games, like I have the Mayo Clinic health guide, and I just point randomly to any page, and I look at the disease, and I play, do I have that? I have that! <laughs> the other game I play is kind of like a Mad Libs. Did you hear about... Huh? She went in for the huh, and that's when they found huh. You know, did you hear about Jan? She went to have a bunion removed and that's when they found the tumor wrapped around her intestines. Did you hear about Lisa's mother? She went in for knee surgery and that's when they found the spot on her lung. Did you hear about Jackie Hoffman? She went in for a uterine sonogram and that's when they found out she's never going to get her own TV series. So... I come back a year later, and now the thing has like doubled in size. It grew from 10 centimeters to 18 centimeters in under a year. They grow so fast, don't they? <laughs> so now it's the size of a five-month-old fetus. And I, of all people, I look like I'm five months pregnant. But the best part of that was when people would ask me, 
are you pregnant? I got to say, no, thank God, it's just a tumor. (laughs) So now the doctor is freaking out, freaking. He said, don't you see how big it is? So he told me that I have to see an oncology cancer surgeon. So I go to the oncology cancer surgeon and I figured, oh, he's just gonna say it's nothing and we can chill and he said, there is a 10% chance this tumor could be sarcoma. Most patients with sarcoma live five, maybe 10 years, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So I had the same reaction I'm having like right now. And I said, oh, oh okay, wait a second. He, he says, we have to take the uterus out. I said, whoa, back up. You want to take my uterus, the organ that's placed in a woman's body strictly for the purpose of carrying a child. You just want to rip that organ from my body? I'm in! (laughs) So I said, when? And he said, as soon as possible. And that couldn't happen because I was in a play. I booked this play. It was a play by Paul Rudnick with a part written especially for me. It was at the very prestigious yet low-paying Manhattan Theater Club. And the stars were Christine Baranski and the late, great George Grizzard. George Grizzard, you guys, was in the original 1961 version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He was a great actor. It was an amazing cast. It was a good gig. And I said, no, you can't do this right now. I'm in previews for a play and we open soon. You can do it when the play closes in January. And this was in November. And he said, oh no. And he kept stressing how important it was and how dangerous it was for me to delay this surgery every day. And I still delayed it so I could open the play. I became the one actor who was telling the truth when they said, I will open this play if it kills me. (laughs) So we scheduled the surgery in December for just around Hanukkah. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, light the menorah. They'll cut me open and find a sarcoma. (laughs) And I'm thinking, cancer. What if I have cancer but it doesn't make me really thin. (laughs) Did you hear about her? Did you hear about Jackie Hoffman? She got that special kind of cancer that makes your ass bigger. (laughs) When I thought I might have cancer, I started to behave differently. I used to get those return address labels from Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital in Manhattan, and I used to throw away the labels and not give them any money. And when I thought that I might have cancer, I kept the labels and didn't give them any money. (laughs) Then I thought, what if I'm in a semi-private room for six days and my roommate is some Hasidic woman named Chaiki with nine kids and they all come to visit? My husband says I have to watch the children while I'm in the hospital. This is Shloimi, this is Mendy, this is Avraham, this is Yitzchak. So I'm about to go under, and I ponder my other near-death experience. 
comedy night at Temple Israel of Great Neck. There were three comics and I was the headliner. I was supposed to go on last. And the evening opens with a Hebrew prayer, always a good springboard for comedy. The first guy goes up, he's doing really well. I'm sitting in the audience and now unbeknownst to me, the second guy is a synagogue superstar and he's really pissed because he wants to go on last and he's pissed that he's not the headliner I am. So now his manager sits down next to me and starts to psych me out. They put you on after my guy? They obviously don't know what they're doing. My guy kills. Well, I guess you'll tell a couple of stories and sing a couple of songs. I guess it'll be okay. I said, are you psyching me out on the synagogue gig? (laughs) So it works. The one name Jewish hit guy goes on and he kills, and he kills. He's doing cancer imitations, he's telling buffet jokes, and the Jews are like lapping it up. (laughs) They're going nuts. And he kills for like 45 minutes, right? Then he gets to the end and he says, Boy, have we got a headliner for you. Oh, are you going to love your headliner? Oh, this person is so funny. Oh, which is like when Hendrix had to open for the Beatles. And so at the end of his set, he lit his guitar on fire and he said to the Beatles, follow that, motherfuckers. That's what this was. Now I've got a room of tired Jews and I bomb in the synagogue in my hometown. My family's there. I digress. Okay, so now I wake up from the surgery. They wheel me to my room, which is sandwiched between the children's ward and the lactation education department. (laughs) Can I go look at the sick children, please? I'm a comedy writer and I'm looking for material. (laughs) A few days later, they do the biopsy and the surgeon comes into the room and says, no cancer. And my boyfriend then, now husband says, yes. And I say, so I gave up my play for nothing? All right, I may not have cancer yet. (laughs) And I may have given up a great role to another actress. And I went through all of the brutal agony and grueling six-week recovery that a woman has to go through when she gets a cesarean section. But on the upside... I didn't have to take a baby home. Keep it going for Jackie Hoffman. (laughs) Queen of the synagogue circuit. I feel like that would have been my response too, though. Oh, okay. Do you want to say it? No, I'm saying, like, that would have been my response. I gave up 
on my plane for this shit, you know? Yeah, I was, the whole time I was hearing her story, I was having anxiety in my head over a scenario of me having to give something to an understudy, like me not being able to take her role. And then you're just like, I want to feel like it was worth it. Mm-hmm. But she didn't have to take a baby home. She didn't have to take a baby. Ever. Ever. So it is worth it. For her. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I want to have kids. So wait, we if just you, went down another road. It's well, wait, wait. We can't just end it there. Just uh, do you, do you? I mean, I'm sure you'd be a good mother if somebody left a baby on your doorstep. Thank but you. uh, <laughs> they might. If I'm getting rid of a baby and I need you, to put it on a doorstep, yeah, Amanda, she'll be good. Indiana has baby drop boxes. What? Legit. Like, there's literally, like, you know, like how you go to the library and you can drop your books? Yeah. Or, like, remember at Blockbuster? Remember that place? You could drop your tapes. They needed to be rewound, though. Um, Yeah, they have, like, baby drop boxes. And it's literally a drop box that you open and there's just, like, a tray and you can just (laughs) put your seedling in there and you're like... So the baby doesn't. I'm done. The baby doesn't have to fall a few feet on top of other babies. In this exactly <laughs> right. Right. There isn't just like a crate, you know. But and someone actually said that, like, because in the story people were responding like, "What?" And someone was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Relax. <laughs> you can only drop one baby in at a time." Yeah. <laughs> Oh. So if you have twins, you're fucked. Yeah, you're going to have to wait 24 hours. Real quick before we bring up the next performer, this is absolutely true. I was abandoned at birth and I was, uh, I surfaced at the Children's Aid Foundation in uh, Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. And I always felt that I got a really raw deal out of that. But now I'm like, hey, I could have gone into a baby drop box. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, Silver lining. Silver lining. (laughs) Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited for our next performer. One of the things that I love about Risk is that we don't just have, you know, comedians on or uh, actors. Anyone who has a great story can do this show. And our next performer has a phenomenal story. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Caroline Weiss. Um, All right, so uh, it is August 2014. I am 30 years old, and for the first time probably in my entire life, uh, things are going pretty good. I had suffered from crippling depression throughout much of my childhood, and when I left home at 18, things really got a lot worse before they ever got any better. But by summer 2014, I'm 30 years old, and for the first time I feel like I've really got a few big pieces of life figured out. For the first time, life was not only just tolerable, it was actually good, and I was really looking forward to what was coming around the bend. But later that fall, uh, some all-too-familiar cracks started to appear in my carefully constructed walls. Showers were becoming fewer and further between. I stopped responding to invitations from friends. I was starting to go to work stoned just to get through the day at the demanding job that I had really grown to love. If you've suffered from depression before, you understand that these telltale signs are 
warning bells of an oncoming train. And the train was still several miles off in the distance. Um, but at this stage in my development, I really felt powerless to stop it from coming and hitting me and pulling me back under into full-fledged, can't get off the floor, can't even bring yourself to feed your cats, buying rope at Home Depot depression. That all kind of came to a head a few weeks later in October 2014 when a series of really shitty things happened that caused that train to go from chugging along quietly in the distance to hurtling towards me at light speed. I had just come out as bisexual and I went through my first very painful breakup with a woman. And then I walked into work one day. I ran the Los Angeles office for a pretty big international company and a pipe had burst and flooded our office and destroyed our servers. And I was standing stunned in two inches of murky brown sludge while a deafening piece of machinery pumped water out from under me. And I am watching four years worth of work go out with it. And two years of my own blood, sweat, and tears are literally down the drain. And the whir of the pump just seemed to pound the messages into my head. You're a failure. You're nothing. You can't control a goddamn thing. And nobody really seemed to appreciate how devastating this flood was to me. Um, I work for a charming Midwestern man, um, but his optimism really knows no bounds. And uh, his, his response was... Um, it's, it's not your fault, Caroline. It's just work. And even if it was your fault, it's just work. So relax. It's okay. Um, you know, while that is a refreshing change for most of the people that I have worked for in Hollywood, uh, it really only served to make me feel more alone and more isolated from everybody that I knew. Because if people didn't understand how devastating the destruction of my work was, then they would certainly never understand me, and I really am alone in life. And then in the middle of all of this, the breakup, the flood, the growing darkness in my mind, I got the news that my dad's business partner's teenage daughter, Melanie, had killed herself. This brilliant, talented, beautiful 17-year-old girl was so crushed by the weight of life, she knew no other option but to throw herself off of a freeway overpass and hasten the inevitable end. And so if, you, um, if you're already feeling like you're bracing yourself for the impact of an oncoming train, news like that effectively ties you to the tracks, rendering you unable to move, unable to save yourself. And I thought, this is it. It's going to hit me, and all of my progress is going to be lost. Um, and so I get home from work one night, a Wednesday night after the flood, and I have this giant... Um, four-foot-tall, $120 bouquet of flowers that I had purchased for the girl I'd been seeing right before finding out she was still in love with her ex. Um, and it's this purple rain explosion, and I am staring at these flowers, and I am just willing myself to see beauty and to see something magical and something special and a reason to smile and a reason to make dinner and go to bed and get up and do it again in the morning. And I'm staring at these flowers, and I see a worm dangling off of a leaf. And at first, I think it's kind of cute. It's a little fuzzy. You know, it's an inchworm. Cute. Um, and then, uh, for some reason, I am prompted to look up. And all of a sudden, I am living in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and my ceiling is just blanketed with fuzzy, squirming, gray inchworms. 
an egg sac in the flowers had burst and given life to a xenomorphic apocalypse with my kitchen <laughs> as ground zero. And uh, they start dropping on me at that exact moment, and it was just horrifying. And so I wasn't yet so depressed that I was just going to leave the worms there and in a few days adopt them as the only people who will ever love me. And so I get my vacuum, and I'm vacuuming my ceiling. And I'm like, well, what's next? Um, and so, you know, at this stage in my mental health, I really had uh, retired a lot of my maladaptive coping mechanisms. So I wasn't really tempted to self-harm. I wasn't tempted to get wasted or do a ton of drugs. Um, but I really didn't want to do anything healthy either. I didn't want to go to yoga. I didn't want to listen to music. I didn't feel like I had any friends I could call. Um, but one thing that I had not yet retired was the internet and Craigslist personals. Um, my parents had been early adopters of the internet. I had been online since I was six years old in 1990. And something that I had learned early on, about six or seven years old, was that strangers on the internet are safe. And that might just give you a little bit of insight into how fucked up things were in my life at the time. But strangers on the internet cared about you, and they didn't judge you, and they didn't think that your life, that your very existence, had ruined your mother's life. And so throughout my 20s, I spent many, many dark, dark, lonely nights on Craigslist personals, um, just in search of human connection. Um, There's something in that shared, sad, lonely, desperate, horniness that just would give me the strength to go on another day. And uh, night after night, I would comb through these ads and that shared understanding of just knowing that there are other sad and lonely people out there, it would, it would just give me the strength and, and the hope to go on. It, it was just a reminder that I was not the only sad, fucked up, lonely person out there. I am not the only one. So I go to good old Craigslist, and I pull up the personal section, um, and, and nestled in amongst all of the horniness is the kind of ad I'm looking for, someone who is seeking a final companion. And I think, perfect, he's, he's looking for his wife. He wants his last relationship ever. This will soothe my wounds. So I click on the ad, and it is written by a guy who is going to kill himself. And he has planned it out. It's going to happen tonight. And he just wants to know if there is uh, somebody out there who will sit by his side and um, make sure that the drugs take effect and be with him so he's not alone in his final moments. He just wants to know if there's a stranger out there kind enough to hold his hand. And I think, oh my God, no. You cannot do this. You absolutely cannot do this. Uh, and so I immediately message him. Weirdly, the ad was right around the corner from where I live, of all the gin joints, you know? And um, I say, I'll be there. If you haven't found someone yet, I'm here. I'll be there for you. Uh, you shouldn't be alone at such a momentous occasion in his life. And so he, he responds. He writes back. And he's like, okay. Uh, and I say, can we just meet in public first? Can we just meet down the street around the corner from each other at this um, donut shop? Because this donut shop is probably the only thing that's going to be open at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night. I head over to Daily Donuts. I don't even know if it was open, but the door was unlocked. Um, <laughs> and so I walk in, and 
there's like clicking yellow fluorescent lights and a peeling linoleum floor and a handful of stale donuts in the case. And um, I'm like, yep, this is where I belong right now. Um, and so I sit down and he comes in. Um, his name is Michael. He's 36. Uh, he's wearing a black t-shirt. He has a long, scruffy, hipster beard um, and kind, sad eyes. He smells like a shower and clean laundry, considerately thinking of the EMTs who will find his body, I imagine. Um, and so he sits down, and the first thing he says is, why did you want to meet in public first? And just very matter-of-factly, I'm a Craigslist denizen after all, I said, well, I just wanted to make sure you weren't going to murder me. And he burst out laughing, and some of the, uh, the power and the weight and tension of the gravity of the situation that we were in is released. And he starts telling me about his life and about what he's going through. And as I'm listening to him, all I can think is, I am such a fraud. Who the hell do I think I am telling this person not to kill themselves when I am probably going to do the same thing in three months myself? How dare I try to be a beacon of hope and light for someone else when I am nothing but a pit of darkness? But soon those thoughts give way to an overwhelming feeling of compassion and care and concern for this tender, broken person sitting across from me. And I'm soon feeling those feelings for myself, too. And I am suddenly struck with great awe and this resolute understanding that the mysteries of life are worth sticking around for. What are the odds, after a lifetime on the internet, that I would see that ad on that night, and he would be in my neighborhood, and he was real, and he was authentic, and he was a person in need just like I was. What are the odds? If that's not the universe winking and nodding and saying, don't worry, I've got you, everything's gonna be okay, I don't know what is. So the guy who owned the donut shop comes over and he says, um, you need to leave, we're closed. <laughs> and so, we, uh, we get up and we're walking up the street and we're heading towards the intersection where um, he can go off to his apartment and I can go with him or I can go to mine. And uh, I turn to him and I say, you know, I can't go back with you, right? And he nods and I said, listen, even if you still think nobody in your life will be affected by this, I am telling you right here that I will be affected and I would be impacted and you can't do this. And he looked sad, and I said, can I give you a hug? And he looked relieved. And we hugged, and it was one of those moments that just transcends any physical human experience, and it felt like our souls were opposite sides of a magnet, and we just came together as one being. And everything kind of stopped. And um, we separated, and he went back off to his place, and I went back to mine. And when I got home, everything looked two-dimensional. The impossible weight of everything that had been crushing me, the, the heightened awareness of all that was awful in life was gone. And I went to bed, and I got up the next morning, and I went to work, and I was off the tracks. And the train wasn't coming anymore. I put one foot in front of the other, called my therapist, and I quickly climbed out of the pit that had threatened to keep me in the living hell that I had grown so accustomed to all of my life. 
And shortly after that night, he sent me an email and he said that he too was feeling more centered and he too had been able to start to put the pieces of his life back together. And he thanked me for that evening and he said, much like Blanche Dubois, I always seem to rely on the kindness of strangers. And I guess I do too. Thank you. going for Caroline White. I'm relieved. Yeah? Well, you were like, it's going to be sad. It's going to be really sad. Well, I don't think that's how I described it. I think I just said emotionally loaded. Well, that's what I take as like sad. Oh, okay. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, wait, there's, there's it. Yeah, there is hope. And so that's what we should all take with us in these next days and four years. Uh- <laughs> But while I cry, why don't we bring up our next performer? Uh, he does stand-up all over the town. Uh, he writes for uh, Not Safe with Nikki Glaser. Uh, he wrote for the Comedy Central roast of Rob Lowe. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Dan St. Germain. Okay, how's everyone doing? You all right? Sweet. Give it up for Beowulf and Amanda. It looks like the adventures of Blossom and the Drifter. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so uh, I have a lot of anxiety uh, in my life. I've tried to um, solve it through medication, through therapy, uh, through meditation. And uh, up until about two years ago, every time I tried to meditate, I would either like fall asleep or masturbate or <laughs> masturbate until I fell asleep. I call it the dirty koala. Uh, but about, uh, I guess this is like three years ago, I was desperately trying to quit drinking. Anxiety was like a big part of my drinking. I'd, I would get a couple years not drinking, then drink again, and whatever. And I was in one of those relapse phases, but I, uh, I was taking Valium to try to counterbalance uh, my urges to drink, which, I don't know, maybe not the best idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's, it's a little bit close to being like, I gotta get off this heroin. Let's try Oxycontin, you know? Uh, <laughs> But I, I was desperately trying to get off it, uh, and then I found out I had just gotten booked to do Michael Moore's Comedy Festival in Traverse City, Michigan, which I guess is, like, the best documentarian that, like, that could do a festival. You know what I mean? Like, I think Werner Herzog's Improv Jamboree would be way worse, but... Anyway, uh, I... Uh, I got asked to do this festival and all the commercial flights were canceled because it was a huge snowstorm and I had to fly private, which sounds really awesome, but I'm terrified of flying. And if you've ever been in a private plane before, and I had never been in one at that point, it feels like God is just holding the plane and shaking it back and forth. And even when I had flew commercial at that point, things were disastrous whenever I was sober. Like one time I was sober on a flight and I was shaking so bad that a guy who was holding his girlfriend's hand through turbulence took his other hand and held mine. 
And I was like, by the end of the flight, he had two girlfriends. That's just how it works. If you comfort another man throughout a flight, he's your, he's your girlfriend. Uh, so I was on this tiny flight, and I guess we were leaving out of uh, New York, and it was me and Michael Moore and a comedian, Tig Notaro, and uh, people who organized the festival. I had never met Michael Moore before. I'd actually, I think I'd met Tig like once. And we start going up in the air, and the plane starts shaking. And I, and I think that what, what, what freaks me out about flying is the unknown and not knowing what's going to happen. That, I just explained to you what the unknown means. Uh, I'm like, you know, uh, exactly what you thought it was before I explained it. <laughs> but that's what, 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 what's nerve-wracking to me about it. And, I'm, and we're going up here in this rinky-dink plane, and it's shaking. And out of nowhere, me and Tig hold hands because she's terrified of flying too. And we're closing our eyes and we're closing our eyes. And I'm like, the unknown, the unknown, the unknown, the unknown. And I open my eyes and Michael Moore is leaning in (laughs) and looking at both of us. And he goes, look at you. Pure terror. (laughs) I swear to God. It, the way he looked at me was like, the, like, like it, it was just weird hunger. Like it, the same way that Chris Christie looks at a Chinese buffet, you know, or the same way Michael Moore looks at a Chinese buffet. He looks like Penny Marshall let himself go. Uh, he says that I'm, I'm trying to ignore like Michael Moore just like looking at me, staring at me, and then all of a sudden I hear from the cockpit the pilots go. I swear to God, he goes, "You guys smoke any weed?" And we're like, what? It's like, you got any weed? And we're like, no. And then the pilot goes, we'll be pretty cool if you did. I'm like, did our pilots just quote dazed and confused? That is the worst way you could hear a dazed and confused. Besides maybe your pediatrician seeing your daughter and then going, I get older, but the chicks stay the same age. That's the only way. It can be a worse situation. But uh, I'm again trying to ignore it. And then I look over the left and I see Michael Moore's having a conversation. And uh, I, I'm like, I try to get involved. And I'm like, hey, Michael, what are you talking about? And he goes, just how I think OJ's innocent. And I'm like, Michael Moore's an OJ trooper. That is as disturbing as like Bernie Sanders saying, Rihanna had it coming, you know? Uh, so all this stuff together, and then we hit some more turbulence again, and I'm like, fuck it, I know drinking, okay? I know what that's going to do. That's the known, it's calm, whatever, right? So I fucking grab a bottle of vodka that's on the plane, and I start chugging the vodka. I black out. I wake up the next morning in my hotel room. I'm wearing my coat and another coat on top of it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that coat's from, but it did have McNuggets in it. So I'm really nervous that I'd killed someone at McDonald's. And this was the beginning of the fattest episode of 48 Hours ever. And I woke up on my phone and I had text in a group text. There was 10 people. And it said, "Do you guys know where I can get Coke?" Pineapple emoji. To which my friend replied, come on, Dan. (laughs) 
I am not on the bed. I had passed out on the floor next to the bed and next to the door. I will go over at my phone. There's three messages. First message. Hey, uh, how you doing? Uh, I'm here from uh, Rocco's Pizza. Uh, I believe I have an order here from Mr. St. Germain. Next message. Uh, hey, Mr. St. Germain, I believe I'm at room 217. I've been knocking, uh, but I don't hear from you. Third message. Mr. St. Germain, I can hear you breathing. <laughs> that is something you never want to hear someone delivering a pizza. Thank <laughs> you again. Like, I, I like imagine Papa John saying that. Like, try our breadsticks. I can hear you breathing. Very disturbing. <laughs> And anyway, I, I get to the festival um, and I find out all this horror. Like, it's one of these things, if you're an alcoholic, if you're in recovery, you ever a blackout drink, like, the next day is like, it's almost like you're in the movie Memento. Like, people are reminding you of this horrible shit you did the night before. And he, like, somebody came up to me and goes, hey, you were at a piano bar and you started singing Born to Run, apparently. Uh, and apparently, I closed my set by burping into the microphone the night before and then giving a thumbs up like I was a president getting on the plane. <laughs> and then this dude came up to me and he's like, hey man, I saw you last night. I'm like, oh my God, was I drunk? And I was like, no, you weren't that bad. And I'm like, oh, thank God. And he's like, just kidding. You tried to fuck my girlfriend. And I'm like, all right, pretty bad. Uh, so I'm apologizing to everyone. I had bought all these iTunes gift cards and... I thought of, I started passing him out to people like I'm like a drug dealer making good or something, you know? And the, <laughs> speaking of which, I'm like backstage and I'm sitting there, my head's in my hand. I had apparently, I had asked the head of the festival if I had done anything too outlandish. And she's like, well, there's, there's a few people you need to apologize to, but one in particular. And my, uh, my, my, my chest sinks. And then a couple minutes later, uh, the door opens and Sinbad enters. <laughs> and he goes, damn. <laughs> and I get terrified because I had never met Sinbad before this. And he said, <laughs> last night you tried to get me to take you to the ghetto to buy you crack. <laughs> and I made that sound, which was, ah. Uh, and he goes, don't worry, I thought it was hilarious. I was like, I'm glad you thought it was hilarious because what it was was racist. That's like finding out you asked Maya Angelou where the check cashing place is. Uh, And then it, it fucking it occurred to me after that 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 I had thought the known was drinking, but then like I thought to myself, the unknown was this this flight that I was on. But like one out of every fucking five million flights, like you have a one in five million chance of dying in a plane crash. Like basically every time I drink is a plane crash. <laughs> Like, I just picked the known disaster instead of the unknown probably going to turn out okay. <laughs> and the whole thing, too. And I, and, and I forgot to tell this aspect. Now the story's a little out of order. Kevin Allison's going to have me shot. But uh, is that, like, when, when, when you relapse, 
with Michael Moore, it just feels like he's narrating a relapse. Like every time I bumped into him, he's like, Dan thought he could drink a six pack of Modelo without taking his dick out, but he couldn't. <laughs> but uh, the plus side is uh, that caused me to get sober, so that's, uh, that's great. Actually, actually, that's not true. I drank for another year, uh, and I, until uh, father and son beat me up in the street together, which is a story for another day, but uh, just know that I brought the family together that day, so... Thank you, guys. Have a good night. Bye. Keep it going for Dan St. Germain. Anytime, like literally anytime Sinbad is involved in a story, I don't even need to know <laughs> what is going to happen. I'm oh, laughing your attention already. Up when he said that. I literally like, stepped forward like... I, I almost came on stage like, what? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so how are you guys doing? You ready for our headliner for the evening? Yeah! This is his first time doing the show. He is an alumni of the Second City, Toronto. He had a very successful solo show called Sex, Religion, and Other Hangups. Please give a warm welcome to James Gangle. Hi guys, oh man, hi, oh great, hello! Uh, I'm so excited to be here, and by here I don't mean like the bootleg in particular, like this is great, I'm happy to be at the bootleg, but uh, I'm happy to be in LA. I recently immigrated here, just two weeks ago, I am new to LA, yeah, thank you, thank you, and I'm finding everything cool and amazing right now, like the taco trucks, the trucks on the street, they have good tacos. That's amazing. There are weed shops with girls wearing lingerie, apparently. Look at this fucking thing. You know what? We have this giant Jackson Pollock. Let's just tilt it so the storytellers can have that. Fucking look at this. I went to your museum of art, and the way I judge paintings now are the kind of, if, they, if they're as big as the bedroom I wish I could own, that's a good fucking painting. I could... Uh, okay, great. Uh, that's not anything to do with my story. Uh, my story is actually, um, it's about this girl named Rebecca Engelbrecht. And she was the South African receptionist I met while I was doing a four and a half month cruise contract doing sketch comedy aboard the Norwegian Dawn. And <laughs> yes, right, very exclusive job. Um, and uh, she was exactly what I needed at that point in my life because I had recently left my staunch Catholic upbringing behind me and I had lost my virginity at 28. I was 28 years old. <laughs> Grew up very, 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 very Catholic. Um, and even though I had lost my virginity, I was still petrified of sex. I was still trying to kill the voice of my Catholic conscience that said everything was black and white, heaven and hell, good and evil. There was no gray area at all. And that's why I am so excited for my contract aboard the Dawn, you know, because I am ready to embrace the gray. I even make a boat plan. Step one, find someone to have sex with. Step two, have sex with her a bunch. 
And that person turned out to be uh, Rebecca Engelbrecht. And what I liked about her right off the top is all the things we had in common. You know, uh, we liked getting drunk together all the time. I met her in the crew bar. (laughs) And we were buying uh, these $4 bottles of red wine. And very quickly, we drink them. And I am hammered. And I I have no moves yet. Zero moves. And so I just say, hey, would you like to go back to my room and have sex? And she's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And we go back to our, my room and our clothes come off and she is naked and I am naked and I have this raging heart on that looks like this. And um, <laughs> I grab a condom, you know, and I straddle Rebecca, but I struggle with the package. I'd never mastered using a condom. You know, I hadn't had that many sexual encounters. And so I just get the corner undone and some of the lube comes out and now the whole package is slippery, you know? And so I'm trying to squirt the condom out like ketchup from a packet, you know? And it just goes right onto her naked torso. And I don't know which way is up or down. And now my raging heart on is like the complete opposite. It's like this mild-mannered snail. And I'm trying to force it into this soft shell. But how do you force a snail back into its shell? And then Rebecca says, you know, James, I'm on the pill. Yeah! mundo. <laughs> the thought of having sex without a condom is like crack for my dick. It's like, yeah! I am immediately hard. Um, but I know sex without a condom has its risks. You know, STDs. I just imagine my dick falling off, you know? Of course, I don't want to get an STD, but somehow the guilt of giving one seems worse. But a new voice emerges in my head. It's not the voice of my Catholic conscience. It's not my screaming fear of sex. It's my new emerging morality, and it sounds like this. Oh, Mr. Gangle. Uh, What? Mr. Gangle, you know, the risk is all yours. What? The risk is all yours, because in order for you to be cleared for this contract aboard the Norwegian Dawn, you had to go to a walk-in clinic to be cleared of all sexually transmitted diseases. So, the risk is all yours. And my new emerging morality was right. The risk was all mine. You know, Rebecca might make my dick fall off, but I wouldn't make Rebecca's dick fall off, you know? And the fear of my dick falling off was real, but it was completely trumped by the fear that my dick not being hard right now would mean that my dick would never be hard again. And so I took that risk. I had sex without a condom, you know, and it was so hot. And I do not mean hot as in sexy. It wasn't I was terrible. I mean hot as in temperature. Women's vaginas are really warm in there, and I just hadn't gotten used to that yet. No, seriously. I was like a snowflake in a hot tub. I melted before I even got... No, I got in there, so high five, 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 high five. Okay, great. No high five there, but you get it. Okay, great. So over the next few days, we drink and we fuck, we drink and we fuck, we drink and we fuck, but I start to feel guilty again, you know, because I didn't even know Rebecca... I was drunk all the time, you know? In my previous life, I would have to get moored. I'd have to get moored. I'd have to get moored to her. We're using sailing terms. Fuck it, Mary. That's what I meant to say. I'd have to get married to Rebecca in order to have sex. And now I was having sex with a virtual stranger. But that voice emerges again. It says, you know, James, maybe you should just get to know Rebecca. Perhaps liking the girl you're having sex with a bunch isn't too high a bar to clear. And my new emerging morality was right. And so I asked Rebecca out onto a date, like a real proper date to one of the passenger restaurants. And 
It was a toss-up between the Thai, Vietnamese, Szechuan, Tex-Mex, Tapanaki, Chicken and Waffles place on deck eight, or Steakhouse on deck 12. Now, of course, I went with the Thai, Vietnamese, Szechuan, Tex-Mex, Tapanaki, Chicken and Waffles place because edamame nachos are worth it. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but as an entertainer, I could eat at any restaurant I liked. But uh, if you were uh, anywhere else on the ship, at any other job, you needed signed permissions from your boss and your boss's boss and your boss's boss's boss almost all the way to the top. So as soon as I ask Rebecca out onto this date, news of the date begins to spread amongst the crew like gastrointestinal disease. <laughs> and people start approaching me and saying, hey, James, are you dating Rebecca? And I'm like, uh, yeah. Are, are you committing to Rebecca? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And then the bosun, he says, are you boat marrying Rebecca? <laughs> That's what a date to the Thai, Vietnamese, Szechuan, Tex-Mex, Tapanaki, Chicken and Waffles place is. It is boat marriage. He says, are you boat marrying Rebecca? Are you sure you want to do that? You know, she has sex with men indiscriminately. And I think, fuck you. Right? Fuck you, bosun. That's clearly the ghost of my Catholic conscience possessing the body of the bosun. And besides, you know, I had sex with women indiscriminately. At this point in my life, I had had sex with two women. <laughs> so the bosun screws off, and we go to this restaurant, and I, and I sit down facing Rebecca, and I feel so relieved that I made this decision to get to know her, you know? And I think to myself, oh, who knows? You know, maybe somewhere in the far future, Rebecca and I will get married. Maybe in the far, far future, we'll have children together. You know, I'd spend winters in South Africa, and she'd spend summers in Toronto. And, uh, you know, it all starts with me getting to know Rebecca really well right now. And so I start at the beginning. I say, Rebecca, how was your day? And she goes, ugh. Disgusting. This black woman came to the front desk, curlers in her hair, bathrobe on, uh, slippers to complain. She couldn't even bother to wear pants. You know, typical black person. And I say, um, I, I don't know if that is uh, typical of um, all uh, black people. Really? And she goes, oh, no, trust me, it is. And she was on deck 12. Wonder how many food stamps that cost her. Wow. And I'm like, check, please. Um, I am so disgusted with myself. This is how far I had fallen, you know? I went from having to get married to have sex to having sex with a racist. <laughs> and so naturally, I... Um, have sex with her seven or eight more times and then we are done. It is over until I get horny again and we have sex a couple more times but then we are truly through except for a couple of blowjobs and then it is over and I make a date, not a date, a time to meet Rebecca where I can tell her in no uncertain terms why we can't see each other anymore. I say, Rebecca, you are a better friend than a lover, I think. And it feels really good to take a stand against racism. No, uh, uh, guys, okay, seriously, just to drop out of this shit, I am horrified at what the fuck I did. That is, I, I, President James is like, what the fuck, man? And if it's any consolation to you, past James is even more, what the fuck, man? 
Because um, I grew up super Catholic, and then I tossed that aside, and I kind of had to murder the past self to be born again, and nothing more could tell me that I was evil than not only was I fucking premaritally, but I was also fucking a racist, and because I was so afraid that, you know, so how would I ever find a girl that actually enjoys sex premaritally? I don't even know. And, and this girl, my dick, it doesn't get hard, but she understands. And I, what am I ever going to, I have to have fuck, 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 fuck. That, that's just a little snippet of what was going on in my brain. <laughs> that's why that happened. Um, but eventually I do. I, we put an end to it. And uh, a couple weeks go by. I don't see Rebecca at all. It's Christmas Eve and I get back to my room. And there are 19 messages on my phone. They're all from Rebecca. And they can all be summed up in four words. We need to talk. Now, there are only two reasons why Rebecca would have left 19 messages, and they both have to do with unprotected sex. And so I feel kind of sick. And I take the phone into the washroom, and I close the door over the cord. And guys, I I haven't talked to God in six months, but I pray to him now. I say, dear Lord, please just grant me a sexually transmitted disease. And I pick up the phone and I dial Rebecca's number. And as the phone rings, I cycle through diseases I would take. Bring HPV. Everyone's got that. I'll take it. Bring gonorrhea. I don't even know what that one is, but for sure. Bring chlamydia. That's one pill and you're done. That's the fun one. I'll take that one. Bring HIV. And she picks up. We need to talk. And she comes to the door and there are tears in her eyes and before I even close the door behind her I find out that those are not STD tears they're Christmas miracle tears she's pregnant and I say uh, how do you know and she says well I missed my period and I took my home pregnancy test and I say well what do you want to do and she says I don't know but I don't know either you know and I can see that Rebecca is terrified but I am terrified too you know so I just say let's just keep talking we'll work it out it will be okay but I don't really believe it will be okay because as Rebecca smokes and drinks and figures out whether to keep the baby or not (laughs) she also polls the crew on potential baby names She settles on Marcus if it's a boy and Katerina if it's a girl. And I realize I don't know anything about home pregnancy tests. So I do some research. Do you guys know how accurate a home pregnancy test is? They are only 99% accurate. (laughs) So there's a chance that Rebecca's not pregnant. (laughs) And I, I cling to that chance. You know, I call every OBGYN in every port city that I will be stopping in. And eventually I get a hold of Dr. Abraham in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And Dr. Abraham, he agrees to see us on a Sunday. And we go in to see Dr. Abraham. And Dr. Abraham is black. And part of me wants to say, hey, Rebecca, is that a stereotypical black person for you? But another part of me feels like this is a really awkward time to make any sort of point about racism. You know, like the correct time was 17 unprotected sexes ago. Um, so I don't say anything. And Rebecca, she takes off her top. And uh, Dr. Abraham, he turns on the, um, I don't know, baby radar. What? Sonogram, that's a better word. <laughs> he, he rubs some jelly on her belly and he uses the, I don't know, I don't know to, uh, <laughs> I don't know, baby wand. Uh, and he pokes... He, 
Okay, it's a wand. Fuck. Yes, wand. wand. Uh, and he pokes and he prawns. And eventually he says, uh, Congratulations. And right there on the monitor, there's this little peanut. And I see Rebecca mount. And I mount. And Dr. Abraham, he senses the silence. And so he breaks it. Is this good news? I'm like, of course it's not. It's the worst news I could possibly get, you know? But I don't want to say that because Rebecca's looking right at me, you know? But I also don't want to say, no, this is fantastic news. You know, I can't wait to raise a little racist of her own. So I just say the most true, most honest, most non-committal thing I can think of. I just say, it's news. <laughs> and we leave the boat and Rebecca and I keep talking. But I think in my heart of hearts, what I'm hoping for is Rebecca to decide to have an abortion. Only I can't ask her to consider an abortion because even as an ex-Catholic, if there is one, go directly to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 sin. It's abortion. So instead, I ask her to consider adoption. And she says, I, couldn't, I can't imagine anyone else raising my baby, you know? And I say, okay, not anybody else. What about me? I can, I can have this baby in my life. I just can't have, I can't have you in my life. And she nods, you know, she gets it, but she cries, you know, and I cry too. And uh, she leaves the boat, three months pregnant and still undecided. And two weeks go by before she posts this Facebook status update that reads, the Lord took Marcus away from me far too soon. And I am so thankful that that prayer I made to God alone on the toilet is answered kind of, you know? But I also feel so terrible. It's not black, it's not white, it's gray. I feel gray, I have the taste of gray in my mouth and that's what life is, it's fucking gray. And um, that's the day I unfriend her from Facebook. I, I get that it, that's sort of funny. <laughs> but I've thought about that for a long time, you know. I think what, for me, I couldn't handle both the guilt and the relief at the same time in my head. I just needed to pretend like it didn't happen. Like it never even happened. Like I wasn't ever that person. And I know now that all I would have to do is write her and say, I'm sorry for your loss. But at that point, I couldn't hold both of those things in my head. And then I left the boat, and I went directly to a walk-in clinic. And I don't really believe that God exists, but if he does, he's fucking hilarious. Because that prayer I made alone to God on the toilet is answered in a real literal way. Because I have chlamydia. Thanks very much, everybody.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Crystal Fart, Crystal Fighters, <laughs> Crystal Fighters, not Crystal Farters behind me now. Although that would be a little bit more down my avenue of kinks. Anyway, we just heard from James Gangle, and of course our wonderful host Beowulf Jones and Amanda Seals guided us through that wonderful little live from LA set. Now. We have a bunch of fabulous shows coming up on January 18th. January 18th, we're in Austin, Texas. We're back in Austin on January 18th. The theme is The Real Deal. On January 19th, Houston, Texas. January 19th is Houston. The theme is unbelievable. On January 20th, we are back in Dallas. The theme is adventure. Now, everyone in Texas, Austin, Houston, Dallas, pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. You could tell a story at one of those shows. Come on out, Texas, and let's do this. On January 21st, we are back at the bootleg in Los Angeles. And on January 25th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Finally, on January 27th, we are back in San Francisco. That's going to be a hell of a show. And on February 17th, we're back in Carborough, North Carolina. We're taking pitches for that Carborough show, folks. The theme is what? And you can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. And anything you want to know about storytelling training, whether it be for your corporate staff or just one-on-one -on -one training or in-person workshops, we're at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.
Pardon me, what did you say? Well, <laughs> people.